Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Let's start tonight in Ephesians chapter 6. Turn there. I have written on the board a reasonable facsimile of what was on the board two weeks ago by the end of the night. If I have forgotten anything, let me know. But in order to continue through the book of Daniel, we have to be understanding of biblical demonology, which most churches today, I feel comfortable saying, simply don't talk about. Certainly, if we're talking about the Joel Osteen version of church, never. That's just never coming up. So much of popular Christianity, in order to keep people coming back and to make them feel good about themselves, don't ever talk about demonology. And yet the Bible is chock full of demonology. So we're going to start with Paul's statement in uh, Ephesians chapter 6. And before we're done tonight, we're going to see Daniel refer to it. We're going to see a bit of Jesus referring to it. We're going to look at the book of Revelation referring to it because there is a very deep and abiding spiritual warfare on planet Earth that people just don't talk about. Now, let me say, having said that, don't let me keep you up at night because Jesus said, if you've got the spirit of God inside you, that is the stronger man taking up residence inside you. And John says that if you're in Christ, that wicked one touches you not. So as we go through these things, don't start thinking, oh my gosh, I might have a devil keeping me up tonight. Because I want you to be reassured in all ways in Christ, to rest and trust in his power and ability as the sovereign over the universe, and to know that he watches over his people. However, the fact that that's true can't make us ignore all the stuff that the Bible does say about the demonic warfare that's going on. And when folk do talk about it, they seem to think that it's kind of an Old Testament thing, or maybe during the time when Jesus was around casting out demons. But post-cross, Paul still wrote this. Let's start at chapter 6, verse 10. It's a good place to start. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. That's essentially what I was just saying. Your strength does not come from you. Your strength comes from the fact that Christ is guarding you. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. So does Paul seem to think that in this lifetime, Christians are going to have to stand against the schemes of the devil. Yes. There's really no other way to read that except that the devil is alive and well and scheming. Peter writes that our enemy, the devil, goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Now, he can't just devour at will, but he certainly can devour. 
So put on the whole armor of God. That's the only protection you have is to put on the armor of God so that you're able to stand against his schemes for our struggle. Now, I memorized this verse many, many years ago in the King James. And so whenever I quote this verse, I think in the King James Version, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. The King James says we battle not against flesh and blood but against the rulers and against the powers. The King James says against principalities and powers. Speaking of spiritual principalities and powers, not good angelic beings, but angelic beings that are trying to do harm in the world. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against the rulers and against the powers And against the world forces of this darkness, that's one of Paul's very creative compound words, kosmokratos, where he takes the word for cosmos, the world system as it is, and kratos, the word for darkness and the word for the rulers of darkness, and he combines them and says that's who we're wrestling against. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers and against the world forces of this darkness and against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. The King James says, and spiritual wickedness in high places. Now, as we go through this world, certainly we're going to see things that just don't make sense to us. We think, how can a nation that is supposedly a civilized nation be okay with the outright murder of thousands and thousands of babies every year? How can a civilized nation say, it's up to you to decide what your gender is? You can pick from any of a great number of genders, and then we all have to respond to you as if that actually is your gender or where people can not only marry people of their own gender, but they could also marry an animal if they wanted to. I saw just this week an article about a woman who married herself. (laughs) And people are okay with that. Apparently, it's a movement going on out in California. People who have decided that they don't get along with anyone else as well as they get along with themselves, and they want to uh, have a ceremony to celebrate that fact, And so they marry themselves. And this society seems sort of okay with that. Well, the reason that I bring up those sorts of examples is the only way to really explain that an otherwise civilized country that has a history of Judeo-Christian ethics and ideas, our whole jurisprudence is based on the rules and laws that come out of the Bible, and yet this nation has wandered so far afield of what we find in the Bible that it makes a person scratch their head and say, well, how did we get this far away from the biblical principles on which we were founded? The answer is not politics. Even though we see it in political environments, the answer is principalities, powers, the rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places. That is the answer for why these sorts of things are going on. And you can think of a great many other examples, I'm sure. I just picked the most obvious hot-button topics. But the answer to why men don't believe in God is not just, well, they're 
silly and foolish. And they've decided for themselves, no, their eyes have been blinded. Their minds have been closed. Their hearts have been hardened. And that happened on a spiritual level. Because any rational person would run to God. The offer of salvation and forgiveness of sin and, and the grace that is going to cover all your trespasses. What logical person would say no to that? And yet people do. The answer is not their flesh and blood. That's what Paul says. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. There is nothing about Christianity that is inherently bad for a society. Christianity is good for a society, which is a lot of the reason that even our government doesn't tax churches based on the fact that churches do the things in a community that otherwise the government would have to do. Charitable work, taking care of the, the poor and the hungry, those kinds of things that churches do are a benefit to our government, so our government stays out of the religion business. I appreciate that. So what's to hate about Christianity in a community? Nothing. But why did people hate Jesus? Well, the Bible says they hated him without a cause. And they're going to hate you without a cause. And they hate Christianity even though it is socially beneficial. And they hate Christianity without a cause. And the answer for their hatred is not just flesh and blood. The answer for these things that don't make sense is principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. That's why these things go on. Now... As we continue through Daniel, we're going to see these demonological, spiritual wickedness in high places kind of ideas. And I just wanted to start tonight by showing you that that's not special or unique to Daniel. It's also throughout the Bible. And it's said before the cross and it's said after the cross. And the only way that the principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this age and this world and the cosmokratos and the only way that the spiritual wickedness in high places is going to come to an end is when the stone kingdom comes when christ finally sets up new heavens new earth when finally god's righteousness is poured out on the planet until even the bridles on the horses say holiness to the lord until god takes the demonic powers and the devil himself and puts them into the lake of fire until the final judgment when he's going to eliminate all of those things. Until then, there's always going to be a struggle between the people of God and the people of this world. It's just always going to be. That being the case, let me also add this quick thought. If God did not intend to utilize the principalities and the powers and the rulers of the darkness of this age and the spiritual wickedness, if he didn't plan to utilize it to bring about his own end, he in his sovereignty would have cast the devil into the lake of fire the minute that the devil spoke to Adam and Eve. The minute that conversation happened, God could have gone right to lake of fire, but he didn't. We know from the book of Revelation that he's going to we know that he's going to one day punish the demonic horde, cast them into the lake of fire, utter destruction. We know all that's coming. But why didn't he do it originally? Why didn't he do it immediately? 
Why didn't he say, I have created the perfect garden and the perfect man and the perfect woman and I've got all the animals and everything's great and there's not even any weeds on the ground. Everything in my garden is perfect. And then Satan comes along and says, didn't God say and starts questioning what God has said. Why didn't God, who would know that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is in the garden, and who would know that he's told Adam and Eve, don't eat of that tree. Look, if you don't want him to eat from that tree, just take it out of the garden. That just seems logical to me. If I can figure that out, God can figure that out. And so he's got the temptation sitting in the garden, and then he lets the tempter into the garden. And then... The tempter has the conversation with Eve. So I have to conclude from the way the Bible is laid out and from what we know of humankind on planet Earth that it's been God's intention from the very beginning to use Satan, which is why even the beginning of the book of Job, God himself says, have you considered my servant Job? He's an upright man. He eschews evil. Have you thought about him? Which makes me think if I'm Job, I'm like, hey, 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 you don't have to bring me up in this conversation. I'm fine. Leave me alone. Because everything after that went really bad for Job. But everything that Satan did to Job, he had to check with God first. And every time God said, okay, you can touch his stuff, but you can't touch him. I still don't think that mattered too much to Job. Yeah, well, you're right. I'm sure the suffering, yeah, the suffering was not mitigated by the fact that God said, okay, you can do this, but not that. And the devil says, skin for skin. You let me touch his skin, he'll curse you to your face. And God says, okay, you can touch his skin, but you can't kill him. So you see that throughout the Bible. You see God's superiority over Satan and Christ's superiority over the, uh, the demons when he drove out the demons from the demoniac at the Gadarenes, the man who said, or the demon who said, we are legion because we are many. When Jesus said, come out of the man, they asked, can we have the pigs? But they had to ask Jesus. They couldn't even take the pigs without Jesus agreeing to it. So the superiority of God in Christ over the demons is obvious throughout the Bible, but... The demons exist, which makes me conclude that they are serving God's purpose. God knows what he's doing, and what he's doing is making everybody on the planet completely guilty so that then he can be gracious to some and judge others and be right in his judgment and be just in his judgment. So again, as we go into these demonological things, I don't want you to think, well, Pastor Jim's trying to scare me and keep me up nights. What I'm trying to do, which is what I'm always trying to do, is say, run to Christ. God God is your refuge in all ways. And the more familiar you become with the principalities and the powers and the spiritual wickedness, the more you know how desperately you need a Savior. Got all that? Okay, so now let's go to Daniel... Chapter 8, because up on the board, like I said, I have a reasonable facsimile of what I wrote last week. Chapter 8 is going to narrow down this field even more. We started out with a head of gold and a breast and arms of silver and belly and thighs of bronze. 
legs of iron, then a ten-toed kingdom made of iron and clay, and then a final kingdom, the stone kingdom, the, the Christ kingdom. And then as we continued through Daniel, we discovered that the head of gold was Babylon and specifically Nebuchadnezzar, that the silver arms and breast were Medo-Persia, which is Darius and Cyrus, and that the belly and thighs of bronze are Greece and Alexander, the first king. And then the legs of iron becomes Rome. But I really tried to emphasize two weeks ago that unlike the previous kingdoms that all had a specific king who was demonically inspired, when it comes to Rome, there's no listing of any particular king who is the central character that God is dealing with in that kingdom. And then two weeks ago, we saw images of animals. We saw that the Babylonian kingdom was a lion who stood up and who had the voice and the eyes of a man. We know that it's Nebuchadnezzar. There was a bear lifted up on one side. That's Medo-Persia, as we're going to see in just a moment. That's because Darius ruled originally, and then Cyrus came up in power. Darius was not a very effective king, and he didn't rule for very long. And so Cyrus rose to power. That's the bear lifted up on one side, three bones in his mouth. Uh, Alexander the Great was like a leopard with wings because he moved so quickly. And Daniel told us that four heads were given to that leopard because the power and authority that was vested into the notable horn, Alexander the Great, was not going to be vested in his four generals who were going to rule over the Alexandrian kingdom. The Alexandrian territory was divided up into four quadrants. His four generals ruled, but not in his authority because he had a very specific, very demonic authority, which is why he could do the things that he did. Tonight, Daniel is going to go so far as to narrow down the bear and the leopard. He's going to call them a goat and a shaggy goat. And then he's going to tell us again, God is going to interpret it for us again. He's going to tell us that the power and the authority that drove Alexander the Great is not during the time of John sitting on Patmos during the Roman Empire. He was during the time of Alexander the Great. And he's going to come again and go into perdition. And suddenly we are introduced, both in Daniel and Revelation, to the Antichrist, the little horn. So I contend that whether or not it is the exact same demonic power, though I think I can argue that it is, that the little horn to come, the Antichrist to come, is going to have a demonic power on par with the kind of thing that hasn't been seen since Alexander the Great and the way that historians marvel over how quickly and how completely that young man swept through the Middle East and through Central Europe and the way that he established his kingdom without anybody being able to stop him. We haven't seen that since that time, but we're going to see it again in the Antichrist to come. Now, I should be very specific. A moment ago I said... We're going to see it in the Antichrist to come. I don't think we're going to. I think we'll be looking over the railing from heaven going, yeah, there he goes. Just like God said. But we'll get into all that rapture stuff later. That was all introduction, and it's already 730. So here we go. Daniel chapter 8. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king 
a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. Yes, because the one that appeared to him previously gave him information about the animals, and now God is very specifically going to narrow it down to Medo-Persia and Greece so that he can make the direct connection to the ten-toed kingdom. I looked in the vision, and it came about while I was looking that I was in the citadel at Susa, which is in the province of Elam, and I looked at the vision, and I myself was beside the Eula Canal. That's just so that you can locate where Daniel is in the vision, because in reality, he's in Babylon, but in the vision, he's in the palace in Susa, which was not the capital of Persia until Cyrus's time. So this is even prophetic, that God has placed him in the palace in Susa, which is the place that eventually Cyrus is going to rule from, but isn't ruling from at the time. Elam is west of Persia proper, east of Babylonia, south of Media, and Uli is, uh, is a river, probably because most synagogues were built near rivers. Not only is that convenient, but it allowed for the ceremonial washing that was part of the priests who served in these temples and tabernacles. Daniel is very specific to tell us that he was in the citadel in Susa, which is in the province of Elam. And I looked at the vision, and I myself was beside the Uli Canal. Then I lifted my gaze, and I looked, and behold, a ram which had two horns was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, and the longer one came up last. Now God's going to interpret that for us in just a few minutes, but I'm going to go ahead and tell you now, that's a reference to the Medo-Persian Empire, the same way that the bear was lifted up on one side because Cyrus ultimately usurped the authority of Darius. Here we hear again that the one who comes up last, the horn, which is a symbol of power, that the horn that comes up last grows longer, which is exactly what happened in history that Cyrus came up later than Darius and then usurped Darius. Verse 4 says, I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward, and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue him or to rescue from his power, but he did as he pleased and he magnified himself. Do you want to see the specificity of Daniel here? He said that the Medo-Persian rulers were going to go northward, southward, and westward. Why didn't he mention eastward? Because every time that the Persian kings are referred to in the Bible, they're said to come from the east. And since they come from the east, they don't go east. They don't go into China. They don't go into India. They don't go... No, they come westward into the Middle Eastern portions into the southern European, into the northern African areas. So they head north and south and west. And Daniel, again, in his vision, is very specific. Verse 5, while I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. How fast does a goat have to go to not touch the ground? Last time he was described, he was described as a leopard with wings. 
to give you the image that he moved very, very quickly. Daniel now is going to refer to him as a male goat who doesn't even touch the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. Okay, so the first goat has two horns. And the second of the horns grows longer, more powerful than the first horn. That's the two kings of the Medo-Persian Empire. But when it comes to Alexander the Great, that goat has one notable horn. And he came up to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal. And he rushed at him in all his mighty wrath. And I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him, and he struck the ram and shattered his two horns. That imagery of shattering the horns, in all of Daniel's images, the shattering of horns is the destruction of power. Because in a moment, the ram with the notable horn is also going to have his horn shattered. So he struck the ram and he shattered his two horns. And the ram had no strength to withstand him, which is absolutely true. I don't know how much you know about Alexander the Great. I like reading history, but I I also like reading historians because historians marvel at what Alexander did. They can't explain it. They have no good human explanation for how Daniel was able to conquer so many kingdoms as quickly as he did over such a widespread area and that nobody seemed to be able to withstand him. I meant Alexander, and I said Daniel, which is why Danielle chuckled at me. And I thought, oh, look, Danielle's making her own joke. (laughs) Historians marvel at the fact that Alexander conquered as broadly as he did and that no one was able to withstand him. And the only answer you can give is the same answer that we found in Ephesians 6 that we're not wrestling here against flesh and blood. We're wrestling against principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this age and spiritual wickedness in high places. That's how Alexander did it. So he hurled to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly, But as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken. And in its place, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. As I told you, Alexander's kingdom was broken into quadrants, and his four generals took over those four kingdoms. And as we continue through the book of Daniel, Daniel, right? Daniel, not Alexander. Okay, as we continue through the book of Daniel, He's going to keep breaking it down, breaking it down, breaking it down. And the line is going to go from Alexander the Great to his four generals to the king of the north and the king of the south, who are specifically Seleucus Nicator, who is the king of the north, who has the rule over the quadrant that includes Israel and all of the Middle Eastern areas. And Ptolemy becomes the king of the south. Ptolemy, the general of Alexander, rules over northern Africa, Egypt, that whole area. And so Daniel's going to get even more specific. He keeps narrowing it down, narrowing it down, narrowing it down, so that he tells us ultimately the exact line through which the little horn is coming. So he writes, 
starting in verse 9. Out of one of them, out of one of them who? Out of one of the four horns that are going to come up and rule in those four quadrants. Out of one of those generals is going to come forth a rather small horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. The word land is added in most translations, toward the beautiful. What's that? That's Jerusalem. Because as I keep saying over and over again, why isn't there anything in the Bible about India, really? Why doesn't it mention pygmies in Borneo? Why doesn't the Bible say anything about what's going on in Canada at that time? Or the South American Incas, that's a, that's a big tribal group of people. Bible doesn't address that. The Bible addresses the particular regions and kingdoms that have to do with his people Israel. And the kingdoms that he continues to list are the kingdoms that have a direct impact on Israel. That's God's interest in what's going on on planet Earth, his people. So out of one of them, the four generals, is going to come forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, that's into Egypt, toward the east, into the Middle East, and toward the beautiful land, that takes him into Jerusalem. And it grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host. That's a reference to God. I'm going to show you that in just a moment. And it removed the regular sacrifice from him, from God, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. As we look at Jesus talking about it in Matthew 24, as we look at John talking about it in Revelation He's going to refer to the abomination of desolation, the abomination that is going to be set up in the temple when the regular sacrifices to God, Yahweh, are going to be stopped and the sacrifices are going to be continued to the abominable one. So Daniel is talking exactly about that. But in order to understand the spiritual impetus of what's being said here in verses 9 and 10, we need to go look at a couple other parts of the Bible. Let's start at Isaiah 14. Turn there. The book of Isaiah, verse 14. I'm tempted just to read from verse 1 down to like 23. This is a taunt that is going to be taken up by Isaiah against the king of Babylon. And Isaiah is going to do something that is very typical of Old Testament prophets. It is also typical of Jesus, like speaking to the demoniac at the Gadarenes, speaking right past him to the demon that's in him. What is your name? My name's Legion, because we are many. It's also what Paul does when he calls him, oh, subtle and full of all deceivableness. He talks right past the man to the demon that's driving him. And so Isaiah is going to start taunting the king of Babylon, and then he's going to speak right past him to the devil that inhabits him. And we're going to find out a little bit about the character of the devil and what his purpose and plan is. Because we just heard from Daniel that what the little horn is going to do is that he's going to make himself the object of worship in place of God. 
But all the way back here in Isaiah, we find out that that's always been the devil's modus operandi. That's Latin for those of you who are here. Never mind. When the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and again choose Israel and settle them in their own land, then strangers will join them and attach themselves to the house of Jacob. And the peoples will take them along and bring them to their place. And the house of Israel will possess them as an inheritance in the land of the Lord as male servants and female servants. And they will take their captors captive and will rule over their oppressors. And it will be in that day when the Lord gives you rest from all your pain and turmoil and harsh services in which you have been enslaved that you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. Now, the purpose of this whole taunting thing is that they are in the Babylonian captivity and they're in the Assyrian captivity. And so Isaiah is saying specifically, God hasn't forgotten you. God's going to bring you back to your land. He's going to reestablish you. He's going to give you a kingdom when he accomplishes all that and gives you peace and safety. At that point, you're going to taunt the king of Babylon. Okay, now the king of Babylon is long dead by then. So why is God saying, taunt the king of Babylon? Well, listen to the taunt. How the oppressor has ceased and how fury has ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers, which used to strike the peoples in fury with unceasing strokes, which subdued the nations in anger with unrestrained persecution. The whole earth is at rest and is quiet. They break forth into shouts of joy. Even the cypress trees rejoice over you and the cedars in Lebanon saying, since you were laid low, no tree cutter comes up against us. Sheol or the grave from beneath is excited over you to meet you when you come. It arouses for you the spirits of the dead, all the leaders of the earth. By the way, look at the equation there. The leaders of the earth are referred to as the spirits of the dead. It arouses for you the spirits of the dead, all the leaders of the earth. It raises all the kings of the nations from their thrones. They will all respond and say to you, even you have been made weak as we. You have become like us. Your pomp and the music of your harp have been brought down to Sheol. Maggots are spread out as your bed beneath you, and worms are your covering. How you have fallen from heaven. Wait a minute. Nebuchadnezzar never fell from heaven. So now he is taunting, speaking to the demonic power that was driving the king of Babylon. Taunting him with how you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you that have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Mm. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. 
Those who see you will gaze at you. They will ponder over you saying, is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a wilderness and overthrew its cities, who did not allow his prisoners to go home. All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb, but you have been cast out of your tomb like a rejected branch clothed with the slain who are pierced with the sword, who go down to the stones of the pit like a trampled corpse. You will not be united with them in burial because you have ruined your country, you have slain your people, and may the offspring of evildoers not be mentioned forever. Prepare for his sons a place of slaughter because of the iniquity of their fathers. They must not arise and take possession of the earth and fill the face of the earth of the cities. Okay, so we started with a human personage. In the middle, the taunt went right to the devil himself who drove the king of Babylon, saying you fell from heaven, saying you wanted to set up your throne in the place of the north and be worshipped as the most high. And then he went back to, but you're a man and you're going to go down to Sheol. You want to see another example of that? Yes, let's turn to the book of Ezekiel. Turn to Ezekiel 28. All I am attempting to show you here is that it's not only in Daniel that the rulers of the world are spoken of as being demonically inspired and that the prophet sometimes would speak right to an earthly king, speak right through them to the demon that drove them. And so it's not a rare thing, it's not a particular or peculiar thing that Jesus and Daniel and John in Revelation would speak of the ruler to come as being demonically inspired, which is why he's going to be able to do things that no earthly ruler would typically be able to do. Chapter 28 of the book of Ezekiel is God speaking to the king of Tyre through Ezekiel. For time's sake, let's start at verse 12. Well, verse 11, again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you had the seal of perfection. Hang on. We're talking about the king of Tyre here. That's just a man. And yet he speaks right through him to the fallen angel, to the demon that is driving him. And he says, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Is he still talking to the king of Tyre? No, he's talking to the devil that drove him. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, the emerald, the gold, and the workmanship of your settings and your sockets was in you. On the day that you were created, because demons are created beings, on the day that you were created, those jewels that were placed in you were prepared. You were an anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were in the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in all your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, 
you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane out of the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. And by the multitude of your iniquities, in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. Therefore, I brought fire from the midst of you, and it consumed you. And I have turned you to ashes on the earth and in the eyes of all who have seen you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have been terrified and you will be no more. Does any of that directly apply to the man who was the king of Tyre? No, it's directly the demon that drove him. So what I'm trying to show you is that when Daniel says that out of one of them, the four generals, came a rather small horn who grew exceedingly, grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land, it came up to the host of heaven. So now you know that we're talking about a human ruler who is also being demonically inspired. He came up against the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall down to the earth, and it trampled them down. Take a look at Tom, if you would, real quickly. Take a look at Revelation 12:4, because John talks about that very event that the dragon was cast out of heaven, and he took a third of the stars of heaven down with him when he went down. That's where the demonic fallen angels uh, seem to begin, is with God casting the devil out of heaven and him taking a third with him. What does it say? His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Well, that's exactly what Daniel says here, that it grew all the way up to the host of heaven, that small horn that grew mighty, and it caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to earth, and it trampled them down. I think we can safely say then that the dragon mentioned in, in Revelation who is the devil himself, who on the way down took a third of the stars of heaven, is the same being that Daniel is talking about here. And it's not a big stretch then to say that the little horn is going to become so powerful because he's going to be driven by the devil. Have I stretched anything too far yet? I know this sounds like fantastical stuff, but it's all in the Bible. And if we say that we believe every word of God, we also have to believe all of this. Anyway, the little horn, verse 11 of Daniel 8 says, It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host, and it removed the regular sacrifice from him, from God, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. And on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice, and it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. 
Then I heard the Holy One speaking, and another Holy One said to that particular one who was speaking, How long will the vision about the regular sacrifices apply while the transgression causes this horror? So as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled. Okay, so the holy place then is Jerusalem and is the temple in Jerusalem. And the host that's being referred to here is the host of Israel, the host of God's people. The ones who are worshiping in the temple who are going to be trampled down by the little horn. Verse 14, he said to me, 2300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. If you want to do the math, the closest I could come is six years and 110 days. So let's interpret all that. Is, you, is your mind hurting yet? Do we need to duct tape your head yet? Have you got all that? Because now God's going to interpret it for us. And we're going to understand it because God's going to tell us what it means. And as I keep saying over and over again, over and over again, over and over again, I'm going to say it again now. Once God tells you the interpretation, that's the interpretation. Whatever your particular bent is, whatever your tradition is, whatever your theological system is, if it doesn't comport with what God says, then your interpretation is wrong because God's going to interpret it. Starting at verse 15, we're not going to make it, are we? We're going to try. It came about when I, Daniel, had seen the vision that I sought to understand it. And behold, standing before me was one like a man. And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of the Uli. And he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man understanding of the vision. So he came near to where I was standing. And when he came, I was frightened and I fell on my face, which is the proper response. Does anybody here remember What's the guy up in Ohio? I just, I used to be so amused by Ernest Angley. I can even, Ernest Angley. Do you remember Ernest? He used to do all the time while he was preaching. He'd be preaching along and saying nothing that had anything to do with the Bible. And he'd be preaching along and then he'd go, oh, look, an angel. And then everybody would turn around to go look at the angel in the back of the room and he'd go, oh, it's gone. And I think, no, if there, <laughs> if there had been, it was a good impression, wasn't it? I guess. <laughs> and I always thought, look, if an angel shows up, you're getting on your face, buddy. You're falling down in front of him. You're not going, oh, look, <laughs> everybody turn around. It's an angel. Well, that's the right reaction. He was frightened, and he fell on his face. Notice also that it's Gabriel who is told to go tell him, because Gabriel shows up frequently in the Bible as the speaking agency for God. God seems to like him as a messenger. He's the one that goes and speaks for God. So Gabriel comes to him. I fell on my face, and he said to me, Son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. Now, while he was talking with me, I sank into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, and he touched me and made me stand upright. Is it worth pointing out that nowhere in the Bible is anybody bopped on the head and fall backwards? 
Instead, what people do is fall down before God and he lifts them up. That's the consistent image all the way across. It's what happened to Isaiah. It's what happens to everybody who bows down before God. It is God who then lifts them up. Anyway, he touched me. He made me stand upright. And he said, behold, I am going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. So now we know when this vision of a ten-toed kingdom is going to happen. At the end. It hasn't happened yet. Why? Because we're still here. It's not the end yet. But there is an appointed time, because God is a God of set times, there is an appointed time when God is going to allow this to occur. The ram which you saw with two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. Okay, so that was easy. So now this is the ram with two horns. God interpreted it. We can fill it in. The ram which you saw with the two horns represent the kings of Media and Persia. And the shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. And the large horn that is between his eyes is his first king. Okay, so now we know who the shaggy goat is. Shaggy goat. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece and the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. And the broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. Real specific. He's going to have a power. He's going to have an authority unlike anything on the planet. But then when his horn, his power is broken, his kingdom is going to be divided, like I've said, into four quadrants. And then his four generals are going to rule, but not in the power and authority that he has. And in the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, I just find that that phrase fascinating because it takes me all the way back to thinking about Abraham asking God, how do I know these things are going to be true? And God tells him the next 400 years of human history and your descendants are going to go into Egypt, a land where they're not known. After 400 years, I'm going to bring them back to this land. They're going to come out with greater wealth than they went in with. And I'm going to bring them back here. And then God adds, because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. So the Amorites who are living in that region, who are going to ultimately be wiped out by the Israelites can't be wiped out by the Israelites until the Israelites become a great nation, which happens in Egypt while they're under slavery. Then they become a great people who come back and who God then uses to punish the Amorites because their iniquity has finally come to the full. And God gives them 400 years to do that in. And so here Daniel says the same thing, that in the latter period of the rule of those four kings, When the transgressors have run their course, at that time when God's going to say, enough. This world has gone crazy long enough. Then a king will arise insolent and skilled in intrigue. And his power will be mighty, but not by his own power. And he will destroy to an extraordinary degree. 
and prosper and perform his will, and he will destroy mighty men and the holy people. And the holy people. What's God concerned about? The holy people. He's concerned about the people of Israel. And that is one thing he is determined to do is destroy the temple, the sacrifice, the holy people. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. He will magnify himself in his heart, and he will destroy many while they are at ease. They're not even going to have to be at war with him, and he's just going to destroy. He will even oppose the prince of princes. Who's that? Christ himself. And he's going to oppose himself. He's going to oppose the prince of princes. So now you know that this is not merely a man arguing politics. Now you know that this is a demonically inspired and inhabited man who is given power and authority unlike anybody else on the planet. And because he has such power and authority, he is going to exalt himself even against Christ, which is exactly how he was described back in Isaiah when he said, I'm going to place my throne in the place of the north and I'm going to be worshipped like the most high. This is the consistent modus operandi of the devil across the board. But he will be broken. Look at the next line. He will be broken without human agency. There's no people going to break him. No God's going to break him. Christ is going to come back with that two-edged sword out of his mouth. Christ is going to come back and he is going to establish his stone kingdom. And that is going to break the power of the little horn. And the vision of the evenings and mornings which has been told is true. But keep the vision secret, for it pertains to many days in the future. Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. And then I got up again and carried on in the king's business, but I was astounded at the vision, and there was none to explain it. Okay, so this, the little horn kingdom... This, the shaggy goat, and the power that drives the shaggy goat goes straight to the little horn. Notice that it skips Rome completely. Because like I keep saying, when the Bible refers to Rome, it doesn't mention any particular king. There's no king in the succession of Caesars that was demonically inspired on the level that Alexander the Great was. And so the power and the authority of the shaggy goat goes straight here. And on this planet, we have not seen a ruler of the caliber of Alexander the Great. But it's going to happen again. Let me show you one more thing. Turn to the book of Revelation, because I've said this a couple of times. I want you to see it with your own eyes, and then we can call it a night. Revelation 17. Start at verse 7. Revelation 17, 7. An angel said to me, why do you wonder? I shall tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has seven heads and ten horns. What a surprise. Now we're back to ten horns. A minute ago we had ten toes, and now we're up to ten horns. 
horns denoting power. The beast that you saw, he saw the Antichrist beast. The beast that you saw was, he used to be, and he is not. During John's time, which is the time of Rome, he is not. He's not on the planet. He's not ruling and reigning. Wherever he is, he is not on the planet. He was on the planet, but he is not. And is about to come up out of the abyss and go into destruction. Okay, now we know where he is when he is not. When he is not, he's in the abyss where God is keeping him until God at the appointed time is going to unleash him onto planet Earth again. And again, you're going to see that beast that was, that is not, that is again. And he will go into, the King James says, perdition. The NASB says destruction. And those who dwell on the earth will wonder those whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Isn't that interesting? Those who were dwelling on the earth at the time that the beast who was, who is not during John's time, who will be again, the people who are on the planet when that happens are the people whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. On top of that, Paul says in Thessalonians 2 that God is going to send those people a strong delusion so that they will believe the lie, so that they will all be condemned, and that's the reason that they worship the Antichrist. So the church can't be here for that. Anyway, all those that are written in the Lamb's book of life are not the people who are on the earth and wondering at him. They are going to see the beast that he was and that he is not. And that he will come. Now here is the mind that has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits, which caused all the reformers to say, well, that's Rome. That's the city on seven hills. Maybe, maybe not. We can get into that later. We're trying to teach Daniel, not Revelation. But let's just leave that dangling for a minute. Because in verse 10 he says, and they are seven kings. Now he delineates them. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. If you go all the way back to the kingdoms that have ever conquered Israel, God's people, if you start at Egypt, and you go Egypt, and you go Assyria, and you go Babylon, and you go Medo-Persia, and you go Greece, and you go Rome, and then you go, that's the, the one that is at the time that John is on the island, well, then that takes you all the way to the sixth of the seventh and that there's one to come. There's yet a king to come. We know him as the little horn, the Antichrist. The seven heads are seven kings, five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. And the beast which was and is not is himself also an eighth and is one of the seven and he goes into destruction. All he's saying there is that this king to come is going to be inhabited, the one who was, who is not, who is to come. And the ten horns which you saw are ten kings. What a surprise. We read about them in Daniel. Who have not yet received a kingdom. So now we know when John was writing, he thinks that ten-toed kingdom is still to come. But they receive authority as kings 
with the beast for one hour, a short space of time. And these have one purpose, and they give their power and their authority to the beast, to the Antichrist, to the little horn. All I'm trying to show you is that Daniel isn't saying anything unique. Daniel is saying things that are perfectly in league with what Isaiah said, what Ezekiel said, what John saw when he was on Patmos, the things that Jesus said. These things all line up because the Bible tells one story. And that one story includes that this earth, this plane right now, this present evil age is not just being run by men with bad ideas. It's being overrun by the prince of the power of the air who took Jesus up on a high spire of the temple and said, throw yourself down, and then showed him all the kingdoms of this world and said, I'll give you these kingdoms if you'll bow down before me. And you'll notice Jesus didn't say they're not yours to give. He knew the kingdoms of this world, as they were, were ruled over by demonic authority. But one day, the prince of princes is coming back. The Prince of Peace is coming back. The Stone Kingdom is coming. And then you're going to see the worship that is due God in his temple restored as David's greater son reestablishes the kingdom from Jerusalem. All the nations that ever fought against Jerusalem are going to have to come up year by year and do obeisance at Jerusalem. And after that thousand years has run its course, God is going to bring about a new heaven and a new earth wherein reigns righteousness. So this story, as dark as it was tonight, has a really happy ending. It ends really good. But right now, right here, we're in the midst of this present evil age. And that, by the way, is why we need each other. We need each other to support each other, look after each other, take care of each other as we wander together through this evil world, fighting against the principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. Does that make sense? Yes. Because I can't talk no more. I'm all talked out. And next week, we're going to get into the king of the north and the king of the south and the 70 weeks and all that big eschatological stuff. And what you're going to find out it's the same way this all made sense. That all makes sense. Okay? Okay. I'm done. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.